My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. On today's episode, we have Dr. William Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a 93-year-old African-American osteopathic physician who currently is a professor of surgery and senior advisor to the dean at the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. He holds the distinction of being the first African-American on the American Osteopathic Association Board of Trustees and served as the president of the American Osteopathic Association in 1994 and 1995. Dr. Anderson was born in Americus, Georgia in 1927 and attended Des Moines University College of Osteopathic Medicine. He returned to Albany, Georgia, where he was prevented from treating patients because of segregationist policies in 1957. He became a pioneer in the civil rights movement and was a personal friend and colleague of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His story is amazing and uplifting. This is an episode not to miss. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Anderson, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm so excited to talk to you. All right, and I'm happy to join you and to share with you what I think you might be looking for. What the heck are you still doing working at age 93? <laughs> I, I do not know how not to work. I've worked all of my life, and I do not know how to have downtime. Downtime wears me out. Matter of fact, there are now nine of us in the Anderson family who are osteopathic physicians, nine. And one of them happened to be an internist. So I called her today to say, you know, Camille, she's a graduate of VCOM, by the way, and after she got her DO degree, she was offered a free ride to get a PhD at Virginia Tech. And she called to say, Big Dad, that's where she called me, Big Dad. Should I, should I take this? I said, let me explain something to you. You come out of there, I'm talking about in Virginia, you come out of there with a DO and a PhD, you can write your own ticket. Write your own ticket. Sounds like good advice. Right, and so she, took the advice and got the PhD. So then she went back and finished the residency in internal medicine. So now she has an internal medicine certification plus a PhD. And yet she wrote her own ticket and she practices in Florida, not where the coast, the coast is where most of the coronavirus reside congregate in Florida, primarily on the coastal areas. And she's in, not in Jacksonville, and she's not in Miami. She's in Tallahassee, which is right in the middle of the northern part of uh, Florida. So uh, she's doing extremely well. I'm very proud of her. That's amazing. And, yeah. And of course, now she has a cousin, which is one of my sons now. She is one of her granddaughters. One of my sons now Two of my sons are OB-GYNs. One of them has a son that went into surgery and decided he wanted to be a urological surgeon. And not just 
a urological surgeon, a laparoscopic endoscopic urological surgeon, so he can take out your prostate with a computer. And he can be in California and you in New York. So, <laughs> and, and two of my granddaughters are in osteopathic medical school now. One is in uh, Pennsylvania, by the way. So I'm very proud of the fact that perhaps they saw something in their father and their grandfather that said to them, maybe I should do that. When they say, well, why do you do what you do? Would you believe I really enjoyed practice? I was certain, mind you, I practiced family medicine in rural Georgia for my first six years. Then I went back and took a residency in general surgery. And I guess I must have impressed somebody because the group, there were four in the group, and they invited me to join the group that trained me. And let me tell you how that makes you feel. The people that you work with for five years, <laughs> and they say, wow, we'd like you to be a part of our group. And I joined that group, and together we practiced. I did general surgery for about 25 years, and then they said, well, you're getting too old now to do that major surgery. Why don't you do something else? And that's when I was drafted, I will say drafted, by Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. And before I went there full time, I was with the Triton Medical Center, which is a seven hospital conglomerate. And I became director of medical education there for several years before I eventually became full-time at Michigan State College of Osteopathic Medicine. Now, you have my whole history in about 10 minutes. That is unbelievable. Yeah, I want to start at the beginning, though. Let's, if you don't mind, I want to rewind. Tell me, what year were you born? Where did you grow up? And where did you go to college? Can we start with that? Yes, we can. I think I was born in 1928. But some of the records might show 1927, 1926, or 1929. You say, how is that? Understand that I was born in rural Georgia, rural, R-U-R-A-L, rural Georgia. I only knew of one grandparent, and she was born and reared in slavery. In other words, she was a slave. And so my father, who was the son, the only son of this slave that I got to know, married a lady from Georgia also, and she did not know of her parents. In other words, she does not know whether her parents were killed, they uh, ran away as slaves, she does not know. But what she does know is, she could have written a book on It Takes a Village. You remember that book? It I Takes do. Yeah, I do. And uh, so she was reared by brothers and sisters of her parents that were dead or escaped slavery before she was born, period. My mother never knew her parents. My father only knew of one of his parents, and she was a slave. That was my beginning. So I was born and reared in a small town, America's Georgia, we are best known for the fact that a president of the United States came out of Sumter County, Georgia, and you have no idea who that president might have been. I can't guess. 
Peanuts Carter, Jimmy Carter. We lived 10 miles apart. He had to come to America's for high school because Plains, Georgia, which was a small farming community where he came from, had no high school. There was no such thing as integration. I had a high school, but I had no prep for high school in that I had no kindergarten, no pre-K. You familiar with pre-K kindergarten? Of course. You didn't <laughs> so, have that. Uh, no, we, there was no such thing. And certainly it was no such thing for blacks. And of course, I'm saying that I was two generations removed from slavery. So there was no provision for educating me. Starting, though, in kindergarten, I did not have. So I had to start in the first grade. So by the time I was four years old, mind you, no prep, I was examined by the teachers, all black, of course, all had a limited education in that my mother, when she began to teach, and I'll tell you about her story in a minute, but my mother started to teach with a college certificate or college degree. You say, how could you get a teacher certificate with just a college degree? Well, in that she finished high school at a time when she was the most educated woman in the town of America's Georgia. Mind you, high school certificate granted her a privilege that most did not have with a college degree because she was the most educated person in America's Georgia where I was born. So when I say I was born somewhere between 1926 and 1929, the records were not well kept. And I got curious <laughs> a few years ago, and I went to Ancestry. You've seen those ads. You pay money, and they will tell you where you came from, give your whole family history. So I paid my money because I wanted to know something about my family history. I got a note back. No, no, you're spelling your name wrong. It's not Anderson, S-O-N. It's Anderson, S-E-N. And you're from Sweden. You are Swiss. I said, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get your money back? <laughs> but I did not contribute more to that ancestry. Matter of fact, I do not have much confidence in it today because my uh, sister and my mother, my father died several years before my mother, but my sister and my mother decided we want to get some more about our family history. And so my sister and my mother pooled their resources financial, and they employed one of those historians, one of those ancestor historians that will track your heritage for a fee. So they paid her to find out where in the world that William Anderson come from. He is the most difficult person that we have ever seen. He's the most ambitious person that we've ever known. And he's eager to get into the military because World War II is going on now. So we don't know where he came from. So after a few months of research, and you looked for, I was not recorded, of course. You can forget about going to the local clerk's office. You go to the church where they would keep some records in the Bible of births in that church. 
or you go to the cemetery and maybe you can find a record of some of your relatives that died. After a few months of research, a researcher came back and gave my sister and my mother the money back. They said, there is no record that we can find of somebody that you have named William. So if you ask me, when was I born? Probably 1927 or 28. I think that's the closest you can get. And no, we did not have any early education. By the time I was four, and I was such a rambunctious kid, is that a proper word, rambunctious? I think it's a good word. Yeah, okay. <laughs> my mother said, I gotta get I gotta get him out of the house. My brother, who was three years older than me, was much more reserved, much more motivated to education and music, and he did very well at that. And then I had a sister three years younger. She, of course, was managed better than me. And when I tell people that I have got a whipping on every day, and if I did not feel uh, like I had a whipping at the end of the day, the day was not complete. But anyway, I was always into something, nothing malicious, nothing that, you know, destroys people or building anything. But I, I, I must admit, I was also always in some kind of mischievous event. And I got whippings regularly, which helped me to sleep. So I, didn't I didn't sleep well that night. So I then, by the time I, I went to first grade through the seventh, and we had no senior high school, you got as far as seven, you went from eight, nine, 10, 11, and you graduated. Now you do the math. I started going to school when I was five, first grade, because we had no kindergarten. I graduated from high school at the 11th grade because we had no 12th grade and there was no such thing as college in my family. Now, there is evidence that my brother went to college. There was evidence that my father went to college. We never saw the degree, so we cannot say that they finished college, but that's all right. They got an education that was far superior to most those who were just two generations, three generations from slavery. They had more education than most of them. Now, my mother was ambitious relative to education, and she started teaching in America's when she got her high school diploma because finishing high school meant that she was in class all by herself. She was the best educated female eligible to teach in America when she finished high school. But she said this, and I will always remember her for this. She said, I want to get more education, but I cannot go back to school. Now I'd be starting college. I cannot do that until my youngest child, there were three of us, and I said, my sister was three years younger than me. She says, until my youngest child starts school, then I can go back to college. She continued to teach in elementary school when my sister started school. So she would be in the same campus as my sister. So she could see her frequently. And she would go to school in the summer to get a college degree from Savannah State College. It's in Georgia, 
on the East Coast, and if you're from New York, if you were to go down the coast, you would come to Savannah, Georgia, a major port. Now for tourists, then for slaves, Savannah, Georgia. As a matter of fact, parenthetically, let me interject this. They are in the midst of urging the administration in Savannah to take down those statues of the Confederate generals that maintained slavery. As a matter of fact, that is happening in many places in the United States where these generals were revered, revered if they kept the slaves in check. And by keeping them in check, if you ever watched that movie <laughs> about how slaves were treated, if they tried to run away, they chop off half the foot. And, you know, they had no sanitary conditions. They were not fed well, didn't get paid for picking cotton. So I'm saying that that is the environment in which my mother decided I am going to get a college degree. So going back now, she says, I will not go back to school until my youngest child, which would have been my sister, is in school. And she was teaching in the same campus where she went to school. 20 years later, write that down. 20 years later, she got a college degree. You had to admire this lady. Number one, she raised that bar so high. It gave me something to shoot for. If my mother can get an education under those conditions, who am I not to? My father, I said, went to college. Whether he graduated or not, there were very, very few slaves or ex-slaves or children of slaves that went to college at all. But my father and my brother both went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. You might have heard of the name Morehouse. I have, I have. <laughs> Let me interject another thing. A couple of years ago, there was a black who became quite wealthy as a venture capitalist. You know what those are, venture capitalist. He lived in Florida. You you know though. Are you one of those? <laughs> I'm not a. I'm a doctor. You know that. Well, you know that they make a lot of money off of other people's money. But anyway, this particular venture capitalist, though, he says, I am not going to let. The next generation, that would have been my brother. He went to Morehouse. Several years later now, Morehouse had, had become the most prestigious college in the United States for African-American males. It was just all males. So he said, and this was two years ago now, this is my class. I will pay the total cost of educating every kid in this class. And he donated $40 million to Morehouse College because he saw the value and he saw the potential of these kids who had been denied access to college because they couldn't afford it. And their parents had not been to college. How could they even aspire to do that? Dr. Anderson, tell me about you. Tell me where, where did you go to college? When did you decide you wanted to go to college? You told me your mother wanted you all to go to college. And then when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? All right, let's try to take those in that sequence because 
by the time I was 16, I was eager to get into the military. There was such a thing as World War II. Do you know anything about that? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and, and, of course, blacks could not get in the regular army. Did you know that? I did not. You do know that the war was going on in Germany and in Japan. Yes. They would not even take a black volunteer to put their life on the line in the military. You say, damn, that was stupid. Well, I, though... Although they said, how could you elect to join a segregated military? They wouldn't even let you in the regular army. You weren't to get into the Air Force. You couldn't get in that. You couldn't get into the regular Marines. How could you be possessed to get into the military to fight that war that was not yours? I said, even though it was not mine, my home was attacked by the Japanese and or the Germans. The only home that I had ever known, as segregated as it might have been, as racist as it might have been, it was the only home that I knew. And you attacked the only home that I had. And I wanted to defend that home. That's what prompted me to keep trying until I got in the military. So my mother, would not grant permission because she would have to okay it if I was under 18. But by the time I was 15, 16, I was just banging her, I gotta go, I gotta go. So by the time I was approaching 17, she said, all right, that boy is gonna get into the military one way or the other, may as well let him go. I volunteered for the Navy. I did not know much about any branches of the military. Navy, Marines, Air Force. I did know there were blacks in an Air Force, but you may or may not know they could not get in the regular Air Force. The only Air Force that a black could get in was Tuskegee Airmen. Tuskegee was the only place where a black could learn how to fly and fight a plane. Did you know that? Did not. Tuskegee, Alabama. Write that down. One of my daughters, I got to interject this parenthetically, one of my daughters elected to, after she got her D.O. degree, she elected to go to Tuskegee to practice. She is the only doctor in Tuskegee, which is now a university, and it was the home of one of the leading scientists in the world, Tuskegee. But anyway, I could not get into the Air Force because I was too young again and my mother would not grant permission. But finally she said, all right, he's going to get in the military somehow, so I'll give him permission. And I volunteered to go into the Navy. I went to Macon, Georgia, which was not far from America's. I went there and I said, I want to join. How old are you? I lied. So when you say, what year were you born? Well, I lied to get a driver's license. Now I'm going to lie to get into the military. Oh, sure, I'm 17. My mother had to assign, and she approved me going in. Then I was asked at the recruiting station, do you want to go into the Siemens branch or the Stewart's branch? I said, well, I don't know anything about either one. I just want to get in there and go and fight those Germans and those Japanese because they have attacked my home. They said, well, let me tell you a little bit about them. In the 
steward's branch, you get a chance to take care of the captain. You clean his quarters. You prepare his meals. Whoa, stop right there. I say, I don't care if the other one is shoveling horse manure. I'll take it. I am not, I do not want to get in the military to be somebody's servant. My ancestors came through that as slaves. I do not want to get in here to be someone's servant. He said, well, the alternative is to be in the seaman's branch. Thus, I was in the Navy, in the seaman's branch, had no idea what I was getting into. But we had, all of us had to go to boot training. And you may or may not know that even in the United States Navy, a black could not get in the regular Navy. You either had to go to the Siemens branch, which was in Great Lakes, or the Stewart's branch, which was somewhere in Virginia. I chose to go into the Stewart's branch, and I did not know until some years later, the company that I went into, we had 65 or 70 black sailors. There was the last all-black company in the United States Navy. That is not recorded in history. Also, what you'll not find is that every one of us in that particular company had at least a high school diploma. You say, big deal, everybody gets high school. No, they don't. Blacks did not get educated because once they got educated, they broke out of slavery. So in this particular company, the last all-black company, and Truman had a lot to do with this, by the way, Truman. He said, this makes no sense. You want them to risk their life, yet you can't get them into the regular Navy. So I got into the Siemens branch. Six, I don't know, six weeks, seven weeks of training, and you get a week off to go home to kiss everybody goodbye before you're going to fight the Japanese. So I, uh, while I was home, though, back in Americas, I came down with a bout of tonsillitis. And it was time for me to go back, and a doctor in Americas called the doctor at Great Lakes, where I was based, and said, he can't travel right now. He's got a high fever and got a bad tonsillitis. And he just said, take care of him. When he gets well enough to travel, put him on a plane, no, not a plane, a train, <laughs> a bus, and send him back to Great Lakes. So a couple of weeks later, I got on a bus and went back to Great Lakes only to find that my company had already shipped out. And they went into what is called the CBs. Are you familiar with the CBs? You ever heard that term? I don't know that, Dr. Anderson. These were the construction people. They're the ones that go, went into the jungles to fight the snakes and the tigers and the lions or whatever wild creatures were in there as they were building the roads for the regular Navy to come in. Late later, I realized, damn, was that fortunate. I was lucky that I did not get back in time to stay with the company. Otherwise, I would have been in the CBs, in the construction crew. So they did not want to keep me at Great Lakes. So they said, you will be on the next ship out of here, going to Japan. So they put me on the next ship, dropped me off in Hawaii. I was there for a week or 10 days, put me on another ship, and that way, I was wound up in the Philippine Islands. And everybody from the Philippines will tell you I came from Manila. They lie. No, they're not. 
That's a major city. But I was dropped off in one of the small islands in the southern part of the Philippine Islands. It was a, it was a small island called Samar. It was a group of small islands, Samar, Tagloven, Mindanao. Those are all groups of small islands in the Pacific. And when I got there, I had no assignment. But before they dropped us off, the captain of the ship, and there was Bull Halsey, I will always remember Bull Halsey in the Seventh Fleet. Anyone in this ship on the way to the South Pacific that has any training at all in medicine? Well, I, well, I, I had two years of pre-med in college. Yep, that'll do. So he said, we will send you to Hospital Corman School in the Philippine Islands. And they did. So when I was dropped off the ship, given a place where I was going to stay, they sent me to medical school. Six weeks of training to become what is referred to as a medic. I was in the Navy as a hospital corpsman. Worked my way up to hospital corpsman first class, which was high as you could go before you became an officer. I was not a real doctor, but if you were in the Navy, you had to be really sick to get to see a real doctor. I'm talking about one that an MD or DO degree. <laughs> so I finished that training and I did what I always wanted to do. I took care of the sick seamen. So a couple of years later, they sent me back, dropped me off at Treasure Island. You ever heard of Treasure Island? You heard of San Francisco? I have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you've heard of, well, there's a island in between San Francisco and Oakland called Treasure Island. They dropped me off there because I was still on independent duty. I did not have an assignment with a company because my company, I said, had left and gone to the CBs. So while I was there, there was a black chief petty officer, which was high or ranking that a black could have in the Navy but that had to be in the steward's branch. So he had to be a retired cook. <laughs> so the captain of this particular company assigned me and two or three others to work with him, whatever he wanted. So I became somewhat of a uh, part of the ship's company. That is, it was not on a ship, but it was on this island, but I was in the island's company. That is, Whatever needed to be done on the island, they would call on people like me. But I wound up with great duty because if you were in the ship's company, you got to know the people in the kitchen and in the dining area. So if you had a couple of pounds of butter and a steak, you could get anything in San Francisco, <laughs> whatever you wanted. So I was there for about six months and found that they let me go, and I returned home. My mother then wanted to know, what do you want to do? I want to go to college. Where do you want to go? Well, I had visited two or three colleges in Fort Valley State County, stood out. That's where I had been for a year or two. Fort Valley State College is in the middle of the state of Georgia. It was a huge college. It had 300 students. Did you get that number right now? 300 students in a four-year college, 300. Now they got 3,001 class. But I was able to go to Fort Valley State College and I was in there until I 
met the woman that I would marry because I happened to see this beautiful woman going across campus and wow, I like her. And she was kind of encountered with the fact that I'm an ex-Navy man and well, to make a long story short, we married and five children later and I decided then, after I got the college degree, we moved to Atlanta. I applied to every medical school in the United States. None of them would take a black except two medical schools. Howard was one and the other one was in Nashville, Meharry in Nashville. Those are the only two black colleges that would train black physicians. Now you say, you mean the other University of Pennsylvania and California, all the No, they had a limit. Jews, they would take a maximum of 15. Blacks, a minimum or maximum of two. And they could usually fill their quarter, what we call the quarter, from their own undergraduate class. So I had slim chance of getting in because two shots at it. So eventually my father invited me to come back down to Southwest Georgia. After I had gone to college and finished and I'm trying to get into medical school, he says, my friend, Dr. William Reese, who's been dead for many years now, he said that he can help you to get in medical school. So I went to visit with him and I was impressed with what he was doing, family practice. No black, no DOs ever had hospital privileges at that time in Albany, Georgia. Matter of fact, so far as I knew, Georgia was the only state that had even a limited license for DOs because Alabama and Louisiana did not even have a license that would permit a DO to practice. But anyway, when this doctor, who happened to be a good friend of my father, said I can help him to get into medical school. And then I found out he was talking about an osteopathic school. I went, my father said, I don't want to do that. I want to be a real doctor. I want to, you know, I want to do surgery. He said, you idiot, you just come and visit with him. Well, obeying my father, and my father can call his children idiots. I probably was acting like one. But I went to visit with Dr. Reese, and he had one of the biggest family practices in Albany, Georgia. I said, damn, Daddy, that's just what I've always wanted to do. Because I thought all doctors were the same. <laughs> they all did the same thing. So if I got to be any kind of doctor and get a license, I was in good shape. Well, he happened to have been a graduate of Des Moines. It was Des Moines Field College of Osteopathy. And Willie Joe Reese had graduated from there, sort of. He had initially graduated from Middlesex Medical School in New York. You probably never heard of Middlesex Medical School. Well, it did not maintain its accreditation, so it lost its accreditation. So although you might get a degree from there, you couldn't get a license because the medical school was not accredited. So he went out to Des Moines. How he managed to find Des Moines, I don't know, because there were only four or five colleges of osteopathic medicine at the time. Today it's 45. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
he went out there to Des Moines to be interviewed, and the dean said to him, John B. Shoemaker, I will always remember him also, he said to him, if you come here, and I need a biochemist, you have an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. If you come here and teach biochemistry, because we need one, we will let you have a EO degree after a minimum of two years. But he said, well, at least I'll be able to get a license. Although the license was limited in Georgia, but he could get a license to practice medicine. So Willie Joe Reese called up the dean, John B. Shoemaker, and say, the son of my best friend wants to get in medical school. Will you take him? Oh, your friend, yeah. That's close enough. I went out there for an interview, and instead of taking the MCAT and whatever else you take nowadays, I took uh, two examinations. One was Minnesota Multiphasic, and the other one was Ohio Reading Comprehension. Now, you never heard of either one of those, but those were the two examinations that if you passed, you were in. So I went out there one day. That next day, I stayed at the YMCA, by the way, because they would not let me stay in a hotel because I was black. I could not get a hamburger at Babe's Pizza Parlor because I was black. That was Des Moines, Iowa. You got all that? You're right all that? You wouldn't. It's unbelievable today. But anyway, they gave me those two exams. I passed both of them satisfactorily, and I was admitted that same day. You got that? Admitted for an interview, take admitting exam, and you're admitted that day. Well, now I got back home, though, the lady that I met at Fort Valley State College. Now I had married her, and we had a couple of kids. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I can visit her, you know, Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving and whatnot. And uh, where am I going to stay? Well, there was a lady who rented rooms for students. And she said she would hear me walking the floor at night. And she came to me and she says, Mr. Anderson, you will never finish medical school with your wife and your kids in Atlanta, Georgia, and you in Des Moines, Iowa. So what she did was she says, we're going to make some accommodations here. She took one big room that she had. This was a two-floor uh, home that she had. She took one of the rooms and partition it off. She said, that'll be your kitchen, that'll be your dining area, that'll be your sitting area, and that'll be your bedroom. One big room. But that meant, though, my wife and my two kids could come to Des Moines. And when my wife got there, she found that she could work as much as she wanted to in the nursery school, subsidizing what I was doing. But remember, I had gone to mortuary science school before I went to medical school, and I taught anatomy, so, oh, you can teach anatomy. So I got to teach anatomy at the Monsteel College. And in addition to teaching it, I also had a degree in mortuary science. I could <laughs> prepare the cadavers. So also, I needed a little extra money. There was a radio station in town. We didn't have television. We couldn't afford that. Mm -hmm. But there was a radio station in town. And they had ethnic music one hour, one day a week. One hour of country western, one hour of Swedish, one hour of what they call black music, and that was it. And it was not making any money. I went to see the owner of the station. I will always remember him also. His name was Weber. 
I said, I'll do that program. He said, wait a minute. No, no, no. That program is making no money. I'm going to take it off the air next week. I said, I'll make a deal with you. I will do the program for free, and I will go and sell the ads. If I don't make any money, don't pay me. He said, are you nuts? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. He said, all right. We'll give you a month. It went from one hour, one day a week, to four hours every night, every night, and made him money and made me a little money, and I was able to pay my tuition. So I worked at radio station. Even after I had to go to Flint to get into an internship because there were no hospitals in the United States that would take a black intern, with the exception of the one or two that were based at the colleges, Philadelphia would take it, and Des Moines. So I went out there for the interview with the administrator, and the dean had called him, pleaded with him to take me. He said he's a good student, make good grades, he knows how to get along, he knows how to handle those situations where segregation is rampant because there was an episode when he was here in the first year where the teacher now of biochemistry happened to be a white female. The dean had said to me, there are some things you cannot do in Des Moines because Des Moines is just like rural Alabama. He says, you cannot socialize with white females. So that was a formal, I said, when I say formal, it was a, a college function, social function. And the teacher for biochemistry now happened to be a white female. She had a couple of drinks and she told one of my classmates, go and tell Anderson I want to dance with him. Now, whoa, you said, well, big deal. No, it's not. The dean said, you are not to socialize with a white female in Des Moines. This white female says she wants to dance with me. If I don't dance with her, I'm going to flunk biochemistry and I'm out. If I do dance with her, the dean's going to put me out because he told me don't do that. Is, is that a conundrum? Write that down. Conundrum. So what, what did I do? Yeah, what would you do? I took a drink and went and danced with her. Nothing happened. Somebody somewhere was waiting for one person to break the ice. That was the beginning of the end of segregation in Des Moines, certainly at the college level. Nothing happened. I went on, got my degree, could have been there teaching. She stayed on as professor of biochemistry. So somebody had to open the door. Are you done yet? No, I want you to keep going. I'm, I'm listening very closely. <laughs> I graduated in the top 10% of my class while I was doing the radio program. I was doing the preparation of cadavers. I was teaching anatomy. And they, I've been asked, well, when did you sleep? Well, I didn't. I decided I would sleep sometime later. But no, I did not have time to sleep. But when I finished, I was invited to come back to Albany, the same black deal, the only one in the entire Southern United States, write that down. That was one black deal in the entire Southern United States. That's Georgia, Alabama, 
Mississippi, and Louisiana. None of them had a black DO. And the one or two that had a DO, they were limited to manipulation. So we were breaking ice all the way. So I went back to Albany, and Dr. Reese, he said to me, you can come in and join me, we can work together, or if you want to do independent, he says, I will help you get started. And he did just everything he said he would do. I had a very successful practice, but this was a very segregated town. There was no mixture of the races. Blacks did not have access to any of the facilities. You couldn't buy at certain stores. You couldn't stay at the hotel. You couldn't go into bars, <laughs> restaurants. That's where I elected to practice. How profound that turned out to be. Because while I was there, Martin Luther King was making waves in Montgomery. And you are very familiar with the Montgomery bus boycott that was success. I later became the physician for Rosa Parks, who was the spark for that event. And because Martin Luther King had come from Atlanta, and I had met him there because he and my brother-in-law were very close friends, he had been an active participant in the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Matter of fact, he was the, he was a reason for the success. So practically in Albany now, the Students' Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, they were called, came into Albany just to try to get blacks registered to vote, and they were rebuffed. They were turned down, no opportunity to register to vote. So SNCC students came there and they started demonstrating. I could see them demonstrating from my office, which was on the second floor in the middle of a section called Harlem. <laughs> there were many of those throughout the United States, Harlem. When I saw them, out there demonstrating and I saw how they were being abused and mistreated. I went home that evening to, and I told my wife and I had three kids by then. I said to my wife, those kids who are demonstrating, protesting to get the right just to register and vote and look how they're being treated. And I said, they are doing that for us, my wife and I, she, she died a few years ago but I have a wonderful woman now with me. But I said, they're doing that for us. It's not for them. And I said, what are you going to do? I told my children, I said, I want you to understand that I'm going to go and join them and I might be locked up like they get locked up. But it's not because I'm a criminal. I had to explain that to them up front because they thought if you were arrested and you were put in jail, you had to have done something wrong. So I had to explain to them, I'm going to do this and it is very likely that I'm going to be in jail with those students, but it's not because I've done anything wrong. It's because I'm preparing a way for you to get the right to register and vote as an American citizen. So, yes, <laughs> I did go, and my wife went also, and my wife got arrested before I got arrested. <laughs> now, how do I go back and tell my children the next day, oh, by the way, your mother's in jail. <laughs> But they began to understand, and the older one wanted to join the demonstrations. If it meant going to jail, she wanted to do that. Well, that went on for five or six years. But eventually, go fast forward 
And you go back to Albania and find out that the mayor for the last two terms was black, the chief of police is black, integration of everything. So it is totally different. And because of what was started 50 years ago with Students Nonviolent Coordinated Committee and those adults who are willing to join the students and support them. And while, if you think about it a little bit, if you go into a new community, there are three classes of people that are readily recognized and they are revered. The preacher, hopefully, the rabbi, if you're a Jewish, the teacher, if you got a good teacher, and the other is the preacher, the rabbi. The, you know, so if you have someone in the community that is admired and respected, all they have to do is say, follow me. The doctor was in that category. And I said to the students at a rally, because we had a rally every night, tomorrow, we, tomorrow we're going to march. Very likely we're going to go to jail. And when I went home to tell my wife that, she said, I'm going with you. No, you can't. Yes, I am. And she went with me. And yes, we did march. I did not get arrested because the third time around downtown, I told her, they're not going to do anything today. I'm going to my office to see my patients. You take me around one more time and then go back home. I couldn't find my wife there after because they had locked her up. <laughs> now go and tell my, by the way, <laughs> your mother's in jail. <laughs> And I don't know where she is. I don't know when I'm going to get her out. But then I had several hundred people that followed me off to jail that day. But I remembered I had befriended two people, Martin Luther King in Atlanta, who I got to know, Rev. David Abernathy in Montgomery with Rosa Parks, who was my classmate in college in Alabama. I said, They've had the experience. Look at Montgomery. A success. It began to knock down racial barriers. The same thing can happen in Albany. So that being said, I got on the phone and I called Martin and I called Ralph. And although they were hesitant to come because we had no organization, we had no money, and there were only two black lawyers in the entire southern United States that would take a civil rights case. One of them happened to be in Albany, Georgia. You know, two. There were three before we were done because there was one in Atlanta, one in Tuskegee, and one in Albany. They were our representatives. But once the attention of the nation came to Albany, NAACP sent its top lawyers down. Thurgood Marshall was living then, he eventually became on the Supreme Court. He sent one of the lawyers on his staff down to Albany, Georgia to work with me and Martin Luther King and Ref Abernathy. And yes, unbelievable. well, it's a long story, but I have given you the gist of it. The rest is history. That whole story is unbelievable and amazing. Forgetting about your medical accolades, I just, everything that you did and going to jail and sending your wife to jail and having to explain to your children. I, I don't think anybody could top that. But when did you decide specifically on surgery? When, when did that, when did that surgery piece come? My mother would tell all of the neighbors, your dog may have a gash in his belly because my son wanted to take his appendix out. 
That was part of what I thought. I thought a doctor was a doctor. There were not surgeons and neurologists and internists and cardiologists. No, no. We didn't have that luxury in America. You were lucky to have a doctor at all that would see you and treat you with any kind of dignity. So I did not know that there were this many different kinds of doctors. So I didn't have a a time in life when I decided I really want to be a surgeon. No, no. I thought that meant being a doctor. Dr. Anderson, so what are you doing with yourself now? What are you doing now to keep busy? Tell me about your regular. Before the virus, I am senior advisor to the dean of the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Michigan State University. I teach a class in anatomy, especially surgical anatomy, because I practiced surgery for over 20 years. So I teach the fundamentals of surgery. And that's what I have been doing for umpteen years. Ever since I came out of practice, I quit. Well, they urge you to quit doing major surgery by the time you're 60, but I think that's a little bit early. But anyway, as I approach that age, I'm 93, you know that by now. By the time I was 16, I was beginning to wind down on my active surgical practice. And that's when I became a director of medical education at Detroit Medical Center, which had like seven hospitals in the area. So I kind of ran the medical, the osteopathic medical education programs at those hospitals because although the hospitals were there, they did not accept DOs in training. So the president of the Detroit Medical Center, who happens to be the mayor of Detroit today, because I kid him all the time, but you don't even know my name now, but he wanted to link with one of the colleges. And Michigan State had a college of osteopathic medicine. So he wanted to get the students and the residents in the Detroit Medical Center. I got to tell that as this is the Mecca. This is ideal because at these seven hospitals, they have all of the different branches of medicine. They had surgery, neurology, and anesthesiology, et cetera, et cetera. Matter of fact, three of my kids trained there. One who got the PhD trained there. Two of them who got the OBGYN. So I'm saying that that is when I got linked with the Detroit Medical Center, and that's when I went full time as director of medical education. And I did that until the <laughs> the president of that hospital system had all that he wanted in terms of trainees, students, residents, fellows. And we don't need you anymore. But then the dean of the College of Osteopathic Medicine, Michigan State, had come to me and he says, I know eventually you are going to leave the Detroit Medical Center. I do not want you to get lost. You have too much experience, too much background. You know too many people in the profession. You know I had been president of the American Osteopathic Association. You knew that. Well, yeah, that was somewhere along the way. <laughs> politics of medicine, but he said, I don't want you to get lost. He said, when you decide to leave, I'll have something for you. That's when I became senior advisor to the dean, and I periodically give lectures in fundamentals of surgery and anatomy, because that's what I knew, that's what I did for 50 years, and that's what I loved. 
Dr. Anderson, your story is amazing, and I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. My final question is, you've had a life with so much adversity and struggle, and you've overcome everything every time, and you tell me the story with a smile. Can you give our listeners, specifically minority students that are thinking about medical school or in medical school, some advice and some wisdom that you've gained over the years that you think that would help them in their career? There's a song that we used to sing during the civil rights movement. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. For me, that prize was becoming a doctor. I was not thinking surgeon, neurologist. The prize for me was to become a doctor because I thought a doctor was a doctor, did everything. Those other things developed out of becoming a doctor. You have to start somewhere. Keep your eyes on the prize. If I had one message, don't let anybody deter you from the goals that you set for yourself. That is the prize for me, getting to become a doctor. My advice then to my students would be, if that's what you want to do, don't let anything, anybody, any condition, any circumstances deter you from getting there. I had no idea how I was going to even finance a medical education. <laughs> and when I started a residency, I was making $300 a month with my wife and five children. <laughs> so even my children ask me sometimes, well, when did you sleep? I said, I'll sleep when I had finished my training and educated my children. Then I'll sleep. Dr. Anderson, yeah. again, you're amazing. The story is amazing. And I can't thank you enough for your time. It obviously, it's valuable and we appreciate it. Okay. Good luck to you. Dr. Anderson, you have a good night. Thank you so much. Okay, all right. Thank you. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.